Welcome to another episode of The Crane, an Africa-China podcast brought to you by the Dongsheng Collective. Today, myself and my co-host Amadeus Musumali will be joined by a special guest as part of our country focus where we look at Beautiful Zambia. There is a song I love called Beautiful Zambia that a, a, a friend of mine sings all the time. So I'm excited to zone into this country. And with us, we have Grieve Chelwa, who is the Director of Research at the Institute on Race, Power and Political Economy at the New School, a very infamous or famous uh, a political leftist school in the global north. So we're really excited to have you, Grieve, joining us today. Welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself and greet our audience. What are you currently up to? <laughs> Thank you, Maker, for that warm introduction. Uh, nice to be on your podcast. Hello, Amadeus. Uh, nice to meet you and be on your podcast. Thank you. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So a bit about myself and what I'm up to is the question, Maker, you asked. Yeah, just uh, maybe what your your recent writings have been about and where where we speaking to you from, actually. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we're having this dialogue. I'm sitting in Lusaka, uh, the city of my birth, so I'm happy to be in Lusaka. I, I left Lusaka for like a 10-year or so span at some point in my history, and I'm glad to be back here uh, where I will be spending a great deal of my time. So very, very excited to be back in Lusaka. And uh, what am I working on? So I'm... I think of myself as a political economist, right? In, 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 and essentially think of myself as one would characterize me as a progressive economist, left-leaning economist, but uh, whatever the title, my type of economics is an economics for the people, right? I think about myself as practicing the kind of economics that is for the working class, for the everyday person, you know, so that that's who I am. And so a lot of my writing or recent work, my academic work, my non-academic work is really a, in that kind of mode, you know, like doing an economics for the people. Economics for the people. Amazing. I like that, Amadeus. We need more on the African continent. We have too few economists for the people. I mean, when you look at the list, everyone is always far, far away looking from above, but not from below. That is very, very true. So uh, Greaves, like myself, uh, is from beautiful Zambia, the real Africa. Uh, at least that's what our tourism board claims. Um, and uh, just to give you a little bit of a background to our uh, beautiful, uh, not so little nation, uh, Zambia is the landlocked country in the northern part of Southern Africa or in East Africa, if you're American. Um, we are surrounded by uh, eight neighboring countries, um, that is both Southern, uh, East African, and uh, Central African countries. We are five times the size of our former uh, colonizers, England, or the British, as we call them in Zambia. Uh, Zambia has a population of about 19.6 million people, probably a little bit more. We recently had a census. Uh, many of our people live in rural areas, um, uh, 54.4% of Zambians live below the official poverty line. Um, copper and agriculture are, are the mainstays of our economy, especially export, the extraction of copper by multinational corporations and multinational capital. So, um, Greaves, tell us a little bit. 
what is the situation in Zambia today in terms of the uh, you know uh, political conjecture, the economy, and uh, uh, popular issues uh, as a people's economist? Yeah, th- thanks for the question, Amadeus. Uh, what's the situation like in Zambia right now? Uh, I think in many ways the situation is being dominated, as often happens in many parts of the world, by the economy, uh, especially particularly when an eco- the economy is not doing very well. And uh, uh, Zambia appears to be at that point where we are having an economic problem. It seems to be the case in much of the global south, but the Zambian one is particularly uh, it's particularly stringent at present. So we, I guess at some point in this conversation, we might talk about debt, but the problem is really everything is boiling down to a debt problem, right? So we have borrowed quite recklessly over the last decade, and uh, in many ways... Uh, the country is being made to pay the price, but uh, sadly, the people who are paying the price are the everyday people, right? So essentially, that's kind of like the economic situation in the country. And because the economy is not doing very well, uh, one is also seeing it in, in the kind of politics that are being uh, practiced, right? You know, so we had a new government elected about a year and a half ago, somewhere there, uh, to much euphoria and much fanfare. Uh, but what has certainly happened is that as the economic pro- situation has become quite dire, uh, right? This new government, which was supposed to be quite, you know, you know, much fun, very euphoric. As the economy has become quite dire, so have the critical voices. Also, you know, people have become much more critical. People are talking, people are voicing up their concerns. Uh, and we've seen some arrests, right? So we've seen some arrests of uh, folks who've been speaking up, that kind of thing. So Amadeus, that's the place where Zambia finds itself today. Right, so uh, not a not not very happy place, I might say. I must say, for a beautiful country. Well, perhaps then we can actually dig in a little bit onto the question of debt before we. I mean, this is a China-related podcast, so we'll speak a little bit about the characteristics, so uh, how we would characterize the relationship. But um, in terms of debt, that's largely been what the news cycle has been, at least also in international media around the world over the last year, last actually three years since in 2020, Zambia was unable to you know, pay on one of their loans. And so they had to default, becoming one of the first countries to do so during the pandemic. I think it was around 17 billion or so. Uh, I know there are different estimates, but they say a third is owed to China, a third to kind of... Uh, Western bilateral lenders. And around, I think it was June last year, we saw different bilateral lenders, different countries coming together under the common framework for a potential negotiated restructuring of that debt. Like, how can we alleviate the crisis? And in September, I think um, Hichilema was touting how amazing it is that he will now be accepting an IMF deal that will potentially, because he was pursuing, I think it was like $8 billion which is almost, you know, half of what um, was owed, 8 billion debt. So question, and keep in mind that you, you, as a people's economist, how in plain terms can you tell us about what has the debt crisis been, who or what are the causes behind it, and what is the current situation? Like, how would you explain it for people who don't necessarily, like I myself am no I read the headlines, I, I try my best, but, you know, economic jargon is not always my strong suit. Well, yes, uh, you, you've phrased the uh, issues and contextualized them very well. Where does one start? And I, given that we don't, have a, uh, we don't have all day, I'll try to be very brief. So the problem of Zambia's debt 
is a problem of your typical African country or typical country in the South. Uh, we live in a, a world economy that's dollarized, which is to say the dollar or the euro is king, right? So essentially, and this, so this is the fundamental problem of Africa, that in order to import stuff, we need to have U.S. dollars. Now, your listeners might ask, why is it that way? Well, it is a settlement that came out of the Second World War when the Bretton Woods institutions were created, right? The World Bank, the IMF, and really the modern uh, world capitalist architecture, right? So in that architecture, somehow the U.S. got its way and the dollar became the world's reserve currency. Yeah? It could have been anything else, but it was the dollar. Right. And because of that, African countries are in a perpetual shortage of U.S. dollars, right? To, to earn U.S. dollars, you have to export stuff, right? To earn those U.S. dollars so that you could use them to buy things abroad, right? So this is one part of the problem, right? The next part of the problem is that uh, for a long time, African countries, particularly Zambia, were faced an infrastructural backlog pro- problem, an infrastructural deficit, before we got onto this podcast, uh, Mika, you were talking about power outages. I know Amadeus just said he shared with us that he doesn't have Zesco in his house. Zesco is the national utility in Zambia, so it's sort of colloquial for he doesn't have power in his house. So all these are sort of illustrations of an infrastructural backlog that the African continent has been suffering from for a long time. You might ask the question, why did we have a backlog in infrastructure? Part of it was that in the 80s and 90s, the World Bank and the IMF told African governments to scale back the size of their states, to scale back the size of their expenditure, particularly on those things that are important for the poor. And part of that prescription was stop spending money on infrastructure because you guys are always careless in how you do it. Right Now, this gave us a serious infrastructure backlog so that by the time the new this 21st century was arising, arriving, we had a shortage of schools, hospitals, roads, electricity, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, so we needed to catch up, really catch up to, uh, to make up for this loss in ground and infrastructure, right? So this is why debt became very attractive, because we wanted to catch up very fast. Imagine if the World Bank and IMF had not strong-armed us into not, uh, into, into not building infrastructure. We would have been pacing ourselves over, say, 30 years you know, building that infrastructure within our means, whatever. But by the time the new century arrived, we had a serious backlog. So we were tempted into borrowing to make up for that infrastructure. Uh, And this borrowing came from different sources. Uh, Part of it, like you said, uh, Mika came from private uh, Western creditors via what is called euro bonds, right? So we were told, go on the debt markets and borrow, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a a particularly, there was a, a fundamental flaw in, in those deals because essentially we were borrowing to build hospitals and schools, but but we were told to pay back over 10 years, right? As you know, Mika and Amadeus, even when you go to the bank to take out a mortgage to build a house, often the mortgage is like over 30 years. But, you know, these Western guys were telling us borrow for 10 years to build. So those are Florida. And then some of the money came from China. Some of the money came from other kind of sources. Uh, but essentially, this is what created the debt crisis. So it's very important to put it in that historical context. It is not like African governments were just borrowing willy-nilly for the sake of it. They were trying to fix a fundamental problem. 
the absence of infrastructure. Infrastructure is key. Wherever you are in the world, you need to lay infrastructure as the bedrock for development, right? Whether you are in China, whether you are in the U.S., wherever that development has happened, uh, one precondition has been the laying of infrastructure. So that's a very long way of saying, sort of giving a story of how we got to this debt crisis. So this is how Zambia borrowed, or this is why Zambia borrowed, and this is why many other African countries have borrowed. It is not to have a party, uh, even though some of the funds may have been misappropriated, but generally the major thrust was to fix this, plug this infrastructure backlog. Indeed, and I think one thing we also have to take into consideration is the fact that Africa is huge. You know, we just said that Zambia is five, four times the size of our former colonizers, the British, um, and the simple need to spread critical infrastructure over countries that some countries are larger than Western Europe. When you're talking about the DRC, um, you know, Sudan before the breakup, you can put most major European countries in a single African country, you know, so that is definitely also a a geographic reality we have to deal with. But um, moving on to uh, the Zambia-China relationship, uh, especially because uh, this has been a a bone of contention um, locally and um, internationally, um, you know, the U.S. has made comments about this, etc., So Zambia and China established diplomatic relations almost immediately after Zambia's independence from uh, the British in 1964. Um, China assisted Zambia and Tanzania in building the Tazara Railway, which is one of the biggest infrastructure projects and south-to-south kind of solidarity works of the 20th century in uh, um, 1975, and a, a mainstay of the economy in northern Zambia and in southern Tanzania. Um, when we look at the economic relations between China and Zambia right now, uh, Zambia exports mostly raw materials to China, things like uh, raw and partially refined copper, tobacco, nickel, zinc, etc., a few agricultural goods. Uh, this trade is worth about uh, $4 billion US dollars approximately a year. Uh, while China tends to send manufactured goods to Zambia, all sorts of things, you know, clothing, uh, industrial machinery, cars, <laughs> electronics, pretty much everything you need to live. Um, the total trade volume uh, between Zambia and China as of 2021 was 5 billion US dollars, which is uh, 10 times less than that of South Africa, which had a total trade, I believe, of uh, $54 billion. US dollars. Um, so uh, just to put that into context, South Africa, Angola, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Zambia uh, exported the most to China in 2021. And together, they accounted for 71% of all exports from Africa to China. So Greaves, how would you characterize the Zambian relationship with China, you know, in terms of major projects, and diplomacy, relationships, even just human-to-human ties. Because according to the UN, about 80,000 people of Chinese origin call Zambia their home. Yeah, Amadeus, and thank you for uh, setting up the question in that way by giving us those that very important historical uh, story, right? The Zambia's relationship with China didn't begin today. It's historical, like you said. Uh, pretty much cemented by uh, the building of the 
Tanzania Zambia Railways, the Tazara rail line, which you just um, uh, uh, shared with us, quite quite an quite an engineering feat, very long railway line. I think at the time one of the most expensive and costly infrastructure projects that uh, has ever been undertaken uh, of that nature. And as I understand it, I'm yet to look up the facts on it, but as I understand it, it was pretty much a grant from the People's Republic of China to the governments of Tanzania and, and Zambia. So how would one characterize the relationship with China? To answer that question, one has to, um, you have to answer that question in a time-specific way. How is that relationship today? How is that relationship, say, 10 years ago? How is that relationship 20 years ago? And so on and so, on and so forth, right? Like you rightly articulated, Amadeus, at the beginning, after independence, we had a very, very good relationship with China, right? A very favorable one. Uh, we saw each other as, as uh, brothers and sisters in arms. We were both fighting the same struggle, which was trying to develop, trying to eradicate malnutrition, trying to improve the living standards of our people, really fighting the war against want, that kind of thing, right? We saw each other as brothers. And this, I think, was the case, as illustrated by that Tazara uh, infrastructure project. It was a case for about 30 or so years until 1991 uh, when we changed government. Uh, we changed government in favor of a pro-Western uh, government, which was led by Frederick uh, Titus Jacob Chiluva. Uh, and then we swung in the direction of the U.S., which means China took uh, a backseat insofar as relations with the country were concerned. Uh, this also this happened for 10 years. Thereafter, we had a new government, a new president, who was much more uh, careful. In, in many ways, he saw his foreign policy as inspired by Kenneth Kaunda's foreign policy. Kenneth Kaunda was the first president of Zambia. This was Levi Manawasa, right? Correct, Amadeus. This was Levi Manawasa. So in many ways, uh, Levi Manawasa seemed to have taken a non-aligned approach to Zambia's foreign policy and uh, was, I mean, he... he, he for him, it was, you know, from whoever is going to assist Zambia in trying to fight this war against want, to fight this war for development, right? So again, Chinese-Zambia relations became quite friendly. I think as encapsulated by the visit of uh, China, Chinese president in 2006, I forget who it was, might have been Hu Xintao. I forgot who was president at the time, but uh, the Chinese president made a state visit to China, in a, in, to Zambia in about two right? So President Hu visited Zambia and uh, was received very well. Uh, but Chinese-Zambia relations, I think, took a major lift. It was actually Wen Jiaobao. Sorry. Oh, okay, <laughs> Wen Jiaobao. Okay, okay. I do, I do apologize. But I, I think uh, Chinese-Zambia relations took a, um, a major lift when Michael Sata became president in 2011. Uh, and essentially, at that time, it became quite clear to the Sata administration recognizing this huge infrastructure backlog and then looking towards China and seeing just the, the massive gains and massive improvements that China had done in terms of its own infrastructure, in terms of uplifting the welfare of the people. It became quite clear in 2011 that the Chinese model had something to offer to Zambia, right? And it, has, it's at, it is at this time that Chinese-Zambian relations, I think, reached their peak, at least in recent times. And we saw lots of flows of Chinese capital into Zambia, uh, but primarily focused on infrastructure, right? Building roads, bridges, dams, hydroelectric power stations, hospitals, stadia, you name it, right? And it was this time that Chinese-Zambia uh, relations really uh, uh, took up. And Zambia became a site or an example of uh, 
depending on who the analyst is, if you are, you know, if Western analysts would say a site for Chinese imperialism. Sure. If you are, you know, from China, you'd say an exemplar of the successes of, uh, of, of, of friendly relations between China and Zambia and so on and so forth. So Zambia really became, right, so the Chinese-Zambia relations really hit their highest peak during the, the government of Michael Sata and Edgar Lungu, who are sort of patriotic front governments. Also, unsurprisingly, whose ideology can be characterized as left of center, really left, left you know, one doesn't want to say leftist governments, but really they were left of center, at least insofar as the economic policy was articulated. And unsurprisingly, very friendly relations with China, right? Obviously, so, and then in the present moment, Amadeus, to answer your question, I would say Zambia-China relations, I think at a very low point, right? Uh, our new president has not made a trip to Beijing, no, as any high-ranking Chinese um, uh, official visited Zambia in the in the new government. Very uh, true. If anything, if anything, there have been some uh, you know exchanges of uh, sometimes encouraging, sometimes worrying uh, words. At the same time, our pre- new president has made many trips to Washington D.C., but uh, hardly has he made any trips in the direction of China, uh, which is surprising because, like you uh, so eloquently told us, Amadeus, much third of our debt, about six, some $6 billion is owed to China, right? So that's sort of at the level of international relations. At the level of the people, you asked a question about people-to-people relationships. I think most Zambians, unlike what is often characterized in Western press about skirmishes or disagreements or fights between uh, your typical Zambian and typical Chinese, actually that's not the case. I mean, what is in fact surprising is the level of contact, the level of everyday engagements between tip, your typical Chinese in Zambia and the typical Zambians is so, is, we're, we're engaged in commerce, they're selling in the marketplaces, they're selling in the shops, they're engaged in commerce with one another. What is surprising is that you don't see, uh, you know, you'd expect to see a whole lot more skirmishes if what one reads in Western press is true. Uh, and I think there are even surveys of this, so they're, you know, the entities that go around surveying Africans, Zambia has been served, Zambians have been surveyed as well on the question, what is your view of China or the Chinese? Uh, most Zambians are indifferent uh, to almost favorable if one reads uh, the results of these surveys. So that's how one characterizes this phenomena. One has to t- refer to the time period one is talking about uh, and it changes depending on which which parties in power in government and importantly which ideology that party follows indeed and uh, i actually really just want to emphasize what you said about the people to people ties that the uh, interactions between uh, um, us zambians and uh, chinese residents doing business here or living here uh, really happen at every level and um, at every from every socioeconomic class so historically in zambia We've had um, a, a South Asian and uh, mostly from India uh, a, a diaspora population. Um, we, we always call them uh, Zambian Asians, but I guess that definition has to be expanded now uh, due to, of course, uh, people of Chinese descent. And um, of course, uh, I think like a 1.1% um, minority of people of European descent, you know, um, mostly um, descendants of the uh, former colonial settlers from various uh, uh, European countries. And I'm really fascinated by the fact that the interaction with Chinese people is just more often 
it happens more often. They serve you in the shops. You find them um, doing construction by the road. And you don't really see this with um, other non-African uh, minority groups in the country uh, that tend to be more privileged than the average uh, Zambians um, socioeconomically. And you don't really interact with them outside of very limited you know, commercial and kind of uh, recreational, like, you know, Upper Mwamba, as we say, uh, the uh, the uh, elite, the bourgeois, you know, kind of places. But um, a, a normal Zambian living in a large urban city like Lusaka, Kitui, Ndola, uh, is probably more likely to have contact with a Chinese person than any other non-African um, kind of person in Zambia. And I, I think maybe that's also something that gets missed in this reporting we normally hear that uh, the engagement is actually mostly peaceful. Yeah, you're right, Amadeus. That's true. I mean, uh, you know, if it were true that Zambians and, uh, and uh, our Chinese uh, friends who are here are not getting along, we should see a lot more uh, kind of skirmishes uh, than what one sees uh, today, which is like normal skirmishes between people, right? I mean, disagreements happen everywhere, that kind of thing. Because as you rightly put it, the interaction, particularly in like our sort of large, what we call townships. Komboni. Or marketplaces. <laughs> Komboni or like the trading places. I mean, it's, it's quite phenomenal. But what you see there is people engaged in commerce and exchanging with one another. One also sees, um, uh, you know, folks getting married, you know, people getting married from China and Zambia, one sees that. And it's it's fascinating to watch. It's fascinating to watch. To mm. We are going to have a, a good number of Chinese uh, or Zambian Zambians with Chinese parents or, or Chinese ancestry over the next couple of generations. I think that's just a fact. I mean, some of us are earlier products of European and Africans, <laughs> technically speaking, over here. So... Um, it's only a natural part of migration and, and movement in history. but Human interaction, yeah. But going back to, I think, the point, important point you raised that I think will be part of the last segment we wanted to talk about is precisely what you said about how close the current government is with the U.S. And so we wanted to hear from you. How would you characterize the recent moves by the United States of America with regards, I mean, you can talk about it generally in terms of Africa. We've spoken about it in a number of our episodes, particularly examining the U.S. as, you know, they did their pivot towards Asia. They seem to be having a pivot towards Africa right now. Um, with the last year in August, we saw Antony Blinken, the U.S., um, Secretary of State launching this strategy towards sub-Saharan Africa. And we saw this kind of facade of Africa should make their choices. We're super diplomatic. You guys do you. But on there are certain people who you should be wary about, aka China. So how would you characterize this, especially considering, and we mentioned this in brief last time, but I'm hoping we can talk about it a little bit more now, that when the US held its US-Africa Leaders Summit in the end of last year, we saw that very interesting or strange is that, or not strange, it's not unexpected, but sad is probably the correct word, how the U.S. seemed to wiggle its way in a deal, a lithium deal, that the DRC 
the Democratic Republic of Congo and Zambia had struck some months earlier about how they could kind of cooperate on producing lithium batteries, which we know is like a big part of the shift around energy um, for future, you know, vehicles, etc. So how would you characterize this moment? Yellen, the treasurer visited recently, the IMF director, Christina Georgieva, I think. I think I was saying Kristalina before. How would you characterize all of this, especially given the fact that there seems to be the sentiment of, I think you gave me the Zambian term was Chikongo? Chikongo? lump in the throat (laughs) (laughs) yeah lump in the throat and i mean i don't think there's there's a a close english equivalent but there's i think amadeus will say but not quite i mean it's kind of like when when you see your friend succeeding and you've got like this lump stuck in your throat because you feel Uh that's what the word that's what that's what chikonko means um right so how would one characterize it yes i mean the u.s is playing catch-up Right, they're playing catch up because China. So the, the one thing that's made African governments, or and I must say African people, I made a reference to that survey earlier on. That surveys the pref- the preferences of the typical African as regards China that they're indifferent to favorable. Right, it is not unfavorable. They're actually partially favorable to China. And if you line it up against what are their opinions of, say, the U.S. or the West in general, you'd find a different story. So what explains this? It's simply because, A, China was until it's, well, officially is a developing country, right? But that has tremendously transformed the welfare of its people, on the one hand, in recent times, without uh, using the barbaric abhorrent, extractive practices of the West. I mean, we don't need to say this on this podcast. We've all read the books. We've all read the papers. We've all heard the stories about the rise of Western capitalism, right? Western capitalism, in many ways, is steeped in blood. That's a historical fact. But China did it quite differently in recent times, right? So on the one hand, this makes China very attractive for countries that aspire to development. Secondly, China understands that you've got to treat people as equals. If you're going to go out to Africa, or you're going to go out to Latin America, or wherever you're going to go out to try to engage in uh, sort of foreign relations with people, you've got to treat them as equals with respect, which is to say, if you're going to help them and you've got the means of helping, you ask the question, what do you want? What is it that you want? Right? And again, the infrastructure backlog problem. You know, African governments aren't, aren't stupid. In spite of everything we've read about them being incompetent, buffoons, no, they they said, look, we need roads. We've been trying to get roads from the West forever, but they told us, hey, at some point they even told us, don't do roads, otherwise we'll punish you if you do roads. We need hospitals, we need electricity, we need all these things. So China listened, right, and then said, okay, we will give you those things as opposed to of the West, which would say, okay, you want those things, but you've got to do this. You know, you've got to become better behaved. You know, you've got to sit up, sit upright in class. You know, you've got to do democracy. You've got to do this. You've got to do, you've got to do this dance. You've got to dance through these impossible hoops to get these things. China did it differently. And because China did it differently and understood those things, China got a head start. Got a decades long or, or, or two decade long head start. 
So the U.S. is trying to play catch up because guess what? The China way is bearing fruit. I think it is not controversial to say it that the China way is bearing fruit. And it again, it is not surprising. If you lay infrastructure, the U.S. did it with the interstate highway system during the time of Franklin Delano Roosevelt when they had their new deal. They built infrastructure to try to get themselves out of a depression. Everybody, China did it. Europe did it. You've got to lay this basic infrastructure. It is the lifeblood. It is the veins. It is the vein of an economy. So this is bearing, begin to bear some fruit. Part of the fruit is that the typical African is favorable towards China. That's, you know, and part of it is that people can see these things, you know, it shows up in some, uh, in some economic growth, that kind of thing. So the U.S. is trying to play catch up. So all these machinations is their attempt to play catch up. Now, because their foreign policy has always been based on uh, what one may call really racist kind of underpinnings, really the kind of underpinnings that uh, characterize uh, the rest of the world as children. Yeah, exactly. Pretty my white supremacy characterizing the rest of the uh, a, a very infantilist uh, perception of the rest of the world. What is happening is that they're still doing. So even in trying to catch up with China, if you want to catch up with China, just do what China does, right? Just replicate what China is doing in Africa. But it is difficult for them because the foreign policy for many decades has been driven by this perception of Africans as children. So again, the, it's difficult for them to stop preaching. So even when you read the text of that memorandum of understanding between China, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Zambia, insofar as producing batteries is concerned, one sees this paternalism written all, all over it, right? Uh, so between just a correction, wait, just a correction, because I think you said yeah. China, DRC, and Zambia. I don't know if you meant the US DRC. And I Zambia. meant the US. Okay, Zambia. just thank you, thank you. For our audience to know the US. That's a that's a thank you for support. I meant the US. So even when one reads the text of that MOU. One sees the U.S. trying to catch up. And even the timing of it is very bizarre. So the timing is as follows. The DRC and Zambia signed an MOU between themselves. They said, look, we've got this cobalt, we've got this copper that is going to be incredibly important for powering this energy transition as we move from fossil fuels to uh, renewables. And then, unsurprisingly or surprisingly, the U.S. wanted to join that party. Uh, pretty much to bring Musokonezo, which is another Zambian word for confusion, but actually doesn't really capture confusion. It's much more than confusion. So that's essentially Kafuafua. what it is. Kafuafua. Massive chaos, <laughs> right? So, but this is really what's going on, uh, Mika. It is the US trying to play catch-up. And uh, I wish them all the best. Like, again, if you want to play catch-up, if you want to outdo China in Africa, do what China did and do it to a larger scale. But they're not promising infrastructure, right? They're not promising these things that Africans value, these things that we know are necessary to develop. You can't develop without this infrastructure, but instead they're doing it in their old school way of preaching democracy, preaching this, and uh, signing pointless MOUs, right? That, if anything, bring about confusion and detract you from the work that needs to happen. And that's building our countries, developing our countries, and lifting our people out of poverty. 
Uh, indeed, indeed. Um, I'm really interested in getting your take on uh, Secretary Yellen's visit to Lusaka. Uh, a lot was made out of this. There was a lot of excitement, especially in the local media and on social media uh, from, um, you know, people who are interested in these sort of things. And um, Secretary Yellen made some very inflammatory statements while she was in Lusaka that surprisingly got a very firm and quick response from our local Chinese embassy led by Ambassador Du. Uh, and that was uh, Secretary Yellen claimed that China was a barrier to ending Zambia's debt crisis. And um, the Chinese embassy stepped in almost immediately, said this was untrue, and actually advised um, the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, and the United States government to um, mind their own business, to fix their own massive internal debts. And uh, I'm just going to read a quote from the embassy statement, the Chinese embassy statement to this uh, accusation. Uh, and it reads, in fact, the biggest contribution the U.S. can make to the debt issues outside the country is to act on responsible monetary policies, cope with its own debt problem, and stop sabotaging other sovereign countries' active efforts to solve their debt issues. Wow, what a statement. What a statement indeed. Uh, and what's very interesting, uh, Amadeus, is that you said uh, Secretary Yellen's visit and uh, Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva's visit to Zambia elicited excitement. Uh, and the question I always ask, among whom? Because I think among the everyday Zambians, there was it was there was just indifference and who cares I mean like again so so what we've seen these types come around so many times and so over so many decades and yields nothing and in this particular case might even have jeopardized Zambia's uh, potential to resolve its debt problem right in the in the in the sense that Secretary Yellen made those inflammatory remarks about um, you know. China trapping Zambia in a debt trap diplomacy. Again, this is paternalism. This is treating Zambians or Africans as children. So why would we willingly want to trap ourselves in debt with another country? Now, why, you know, why, why, why would we want uh, the U.S. to speak for us? Why would we want the U.S. to speak for us that you guys can't see it? You can't see it, but you're being trapped in a debt cycle. Right. So again, this whole paternalism is difficult to uh, wash off. Right. But yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, Secretary Yellen's remarks were unfortunate uh, and in many ways might have even jeopardized our potential to really restructure our debt. What our list your listeners need to understand, Amadeus, is that like, as many things, like many things in the world, right, geopolitics is always going to be at play. So Zambia's debt... Uh, is a geopolitical issue, right? And the evidence is exactly this exchange that came out of a visit, <laughs> right, to Zambia by Secretary Yellen, that Zambia's debt problem is a geopolitical issue. And this is what the Zambian government needs to recognize, that to resolve this debt, we'll have to carefully maneuver because, you know, you know there's a realignment of global powers in the world that is underway, uh, and we have been caught in the middle of it. But we have to be very careful if we're going to resolve this uh, problem. We have to be in many ways non-aligned in resolving this problem. In many ways, we have to not say people should visit Zambia. You know, Secretary Yellen should visit. We're warm people. We like people to visit us. 
but we have to be very careful how that visit is characterized, right, uh, in many ways. So Mika talked about the common framework, and I, I like to talk about this common framework as an example of this geopolitical fight. So essentially the common framework is a mechanism that is supposed to help uh, poorer countries resolve their sovereign debt problems. Right now, what happens is that you know a bunch of countries to whom we owe money are supposed to meet around a table. That table is chaired by uh, uh, by some one country, one of the countries to whom we owe money, or two countries to whom we owe money. And through them dialoguing with us, we can resolve this debt. So you can see it's a delicate balance. Right now, we have a common framework set up for Zambia. That common framework supposed to set, sets up a creditor committee of countries to whom we owe money. That committee is chaired by China and France right now, right? So you can already see that it's tricky. France represents the old guard, you know, the so-called Paris Club, the group of Western lenders who we used to deal with a long time ago, right? Back in the day, if you had a debt problem as an African country, you only dealt with the Paris Club, a group of friends who like each other. So they would all talk to you in unison and tell you what to do. But things have changed. China is now a rising power. They've, they've got a seat on the table, but they're not quite the part like the Paris Club, right? They also have their own interests. They, also, they have their own philosophy, their own outlook, etc., etc. So, and Zambia is caught in between, right? So this is why I think we, as a country, we managed the visit of Secretary Yellen badly. Right? We're not, again, grasping the seismic shifts that are taking place in the world and trying to reposition ourselves uh, in tandem to that. So back to the spirit of Kenneth Kaunda uh, and the non-aligned movement, right? What is in our interest um, and how do we manage the relationships we have with everyone? We are welcoming people, we are warm people, but uh, we also want to develop. And I think the point you raised, and I'm glad that we're kind of getting to the end of this interview with the sentiment you raised, is that how are our African governments grasping the seismic shifts and the various potentials behind them? As we saw last year with a lot of African states refusing to sanction Russia, to you know just go on board with uh, various US-led initiatives in the UN last year, uh, the continued support for Cuba, the continued support for Palestine. There is a mood for non-alignment that different African governments could leverage in their favor to better position our interests. But as you said, we're not necessarily sure if our, our beautiful Zambia and the leaders there are grasping the potential to do so. So I think that was a really great point to raise. And this year is going to be very interesting how things shape up. You know, BRICS is going to be hosted in South Africa in a couple of um, months and the second half of the year. And we are seeing more and more, you know, I think it's Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Egypt are wanting to join in the expanded BRICS. If they do so, they could actually take about, I think it's 40% of the global GDP if the expanded group meets. So we're also seeing different regional alliances form up and it'll be very interesting to see where Zambia puts their feet in all of this. Given, as you said, Amadeus, this actually sad, you know, historic legacy that we have to recover of being a frontline state who really held its own when we were, as a continent, fighting for the soul of Africa for the African people. So thank you so much for, I think, sharing that, Amadeus. I learned a lot. Uh, you know, there's nothing quite like talking to somebody who understands the rules of the Westerners, but knows how to see through them and understand where the economic and political interests lie. So thank you for joining us. 
And we're super excited for, I, w- I just want to plug that uh, you've started working with um, my organization, Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. And I believe you and Vijay Prashad, the director, are working on alternatives to the IMF, a study of sorts. I don't know if you want to mention one liner. It'll be coming up in uh, a couple of months, March, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And it might be something for our listeners to look out for. Yeah, if the ancestors uh, give me the inspiration, it should be coming out in March. But you're right. I mean, in the present moment, what as many countries in Africa are having this debt problem and they're using the same medicine that they've used so many times before, which has never worked, of going to the IMF, one comes up with the question, what are the alternatives? You know, there's... In an in inability on the part of our ministers of finance, our ministries of finance, to imagine an, a different route or different route, as the Americans say, to the IMF uh, way of doing things. So what Vijay Prashad and myself are trying to do in this uh, uh, piece we're working on is try to begin a conversation, to list some alternatives uh, and to say there are different ways of doing things that maintain your sovereignty, that most importantly protect uh, the people, right? That's that's what this is all about. I mean, what what is an economy? In whose benefit is the economy if not for the people, right? That's always the question. So that's essentially what we're trying to do with Vijay Prashad in this piece. So wish us luck, <laughs> right? In, in right. All the best. <laughs> you got this. You got this. You got this. Yes, yes. What's the word for confusion? I, I, I want to expel that confusion away. What is it called? Kafwafwa. 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 Okay. Yeah. No kafwafwa will be will be held in your minds when you write this piece. Oh, thank you. And uh, kafwafwa is much more, much more uh, sort of, it, there's no equivalent for it in English. You could start with confusion, but, <laughs> but it's, it's much more than confusion, right? So, and, and that's sadly, that's the history of Africa of the last 60 or some years of independence. Uh, much kafwafwa. Yeah, much come. not because of our own doing, but uh, sure. largely because of the doing of others, right? In sponsoring Kafafa on the continent. Sponsoring ah US sponsored Kafafa. <laughs> we now got our episode title. Amazing. You see? The, the headlines write themselves. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we have just been speaking with uh, Grief uh, Chawa, the Director of Research at the Institute on Race, Power and Political Economy at the New School. Amazing interview. Thank you so much for joining us. You have been listening to the Crane and Africa China podcast. Follow us on all major social media platforms at Dongsheng News on Twitter, Telegram, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and YouTube. You can listen to this podcast wherever you get podcasts from. If you like what we do, please share it with your friends, family, and network. It helps us grow and helps more people like you find this podcast. And hey, if you really like what we did today, leave us a review. It always helps with the algorithm juice. And you know, we need that algorithm juice. Thank you so much and catch you next time. Bye-bye.